Hello, I'm Dave Watts, and this is the Redundancy Podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to share the challenges of finding and keeping a job as an older worker. Today, I'm joined by Mary Bright, Head of Social Affairs and Age Special Advisor for the Phoenix Group in the UK. Mary is the Specialist Policy Advisor to Andy Briggs, the British government's business champion for both the Industrial Strategy Age Grand Challenge and for older workers. In 2018, Mary was appointed by the Women and Equality Select Committee as a specialist advisor to their inquiry into age discrimination at work. We're going to talk about how to encourage organisations to harness the power of older workers and the benefits of multi-generational teams. Mary, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, David. Long-term unemployment for older workers is on the rise, and data shows that many businesses in the UK and across the world are reluctant to recruit older workers. How can organisations and businesses be encouraged to harness the power of older workers and multi-generational teams? Can I just say, it stuns me that we're still having to have this conversation, but we are, and it's great that you're doing this podcast. And you're asking me about uh, how. Before I do that, I'd just like to talk a little bit about why. So why should a business care? There is a, a legal factor, ageism, But I usually start with the bottom line. It just makes business sense. An age-diverse workforce, a diverse workforce, is proven to have an advantage to a business bottom line. So a good business leader will want an organisation that better reflects its customer base, reflects its organisations, makes better decisions, delivers better returns. So that's why a business ought to do it in terms of the how, which is what you actually asked me, I simplify it down into three initial steps and then three areas for action. So those first three initial steps are look, listen, and act. So look at your data, listen to your people, and act on what they say. Usually, that will then result in three areas for companies to focus on. Recruitment, retention, and training or retraining. So, but absolutely fundamentally start with your data look at what you've got 30 percent of the workforce in the uk and actually this applies to to most developed countries are over the age of 50 so if your workforce isn't around 30 percent over 50 you you have something that you want to look at a bit further if so some some organizations i've worked with some areas have had maybe 60 70% of their workers over 50. That's a very different problem to an organization or business has only maybe 5%, but they're both problems. Yes, I can see just about anywhere I go or anybody I speak to, certainly my contemporaries, that when it comes to ageism, there are many ways to, if I put in inverted commas, legitimately sift out older candidates and focus on younger candidates. And as you say, there are plenty of reviews that show a direct impact on the bottom line. But are there some examples of organisations that are tapping into the potential of intergenerational workforces? And then what are they doing that makes it so successful? Yeah, it's a good question because it's easy to slate, but what about celebrate? Um, So a couple of organisations, I think everybody will have heard of them. So Rolls-Royce, excellent um, approach. They looked at their data and they realised that they had an ageing workforce immensely talented hand detailing each Rolls-Royce that came off the production line, but it was a production line. 
So that created some issues for them retaining their skilled people. So what they did was talk to them and made some adaptations, put cushioned flooring in, enabled people to rest against something or sit down. They also needed to get that training and retraining skills across the workforce. So then mentored and coached their older skilled employees with their newer recruits. So that's a great example of them looking at the data, realizing they had a problem, listening to their people who wanted to carry on working but were having musculoskeletal issues and who also wanted to hand on their their craft and their expertise and applying that look, listen, act, retain, recruit, retrain. Another one that I think most people will have heard of is McDonald's. So absolutely at the other end of the income band for, for access. But what they do, and I think they actually do loads of things very well. I was talking to their, their UK head yesterday. They really focus on progression for all people, regardless of age. They also focus on their customer satisfaction. And by doing that, they found something really interesting. Stores with intergenerational teams had higher customer satisfaction than stores with monogenerational teams. And they kept on looking and thinking, is it really that there's a mixed age workforce? And it really was. So they've celebrated that and encouraged their franchise owners and, and their stores to embrace multi-generations. I just think that's, that's lovely. Having that combination of let's train everybody and give everybody equal opportunity to progress within our organization, but also focus on the customer. Let's actually, that's evidencing that bottom line piece, and then let's celebrate and promote it. So two pretty substantial brands there, both doing good stuff in different ways. That's really interesting, as we know that causation and correlation are not always the same. I was surprised last year to discover that one British charity, whose stated aim is to look at ageing and attitudes towards ageing in society, employed just 10%, if I remember correctly, of staff over 55, and something like 80% of their staff were younger than 45. I found that really very surprising and maybe indicative of some organisations' huge reluctance to employ people for whatever reason who are older rather than younger. Yeah, and and it's, again, it stuns me because when you look at the last two presidents of the United States, they haven't been noted for their youth, uh, but celebrated in one case for their experience and potentially not celebrated so much in in the predecessor's case. But age is no, no barrier to ambition and it should be no barrier to employment. No, and yet it is. And as I say, the law says that cars shouldn't travel more than 30 miles an hour on the road outside the house where I live. (laughs) And if I look outside, they certainly do. Yeah, well, I I feel that I was crossing a road last week and unfortunately I was was hit by a car that was not going too fast, but still was a nasty experience. I'm I'm a big proponent of speed limits being adhered to. You've touched on this already with your last answer with Rolls Royce, but can businesses do more to foster age-friendly work environments in which older workers are valued for their skills and experience? Yes, absolutely. And they should. So yes, I can talk about the, the those three R's, the recruit, retrain and retain. And what does that mean? So for recruitment, I usually look at the job sites and I look at the imagery. And so many companies will be beautifully diverse in their imagery in terms of ethnicity and, and gender. 
but won't have a single grey hair or, or no hair person featuring in it. So very simple step for any, any companies, look at what your imagery is saying. And if it isn't age diverse, change it. So that's something, first step on recruitment, looking at the language of your job ads. Of course, we know that dynamic, energetic, creative are code for young, and that usually belies a bias, be it conscious or not, in the recruitment person who has written and used those words. In training I, I, or retraining, I go back to the data point. If you know you have X percent of the workforce, of a certain age cohort, what percentage are you offering training courses to? What percentage are taking up? Because if you aren't offering that training proportionate to your data, then you, you are either consciously or unconsciously applying bias. We did some research in a previous company where we looked at our annual survey and one of the questions was, have you had a meaningful conversation with your manager about your future work. And people who were over the age of 50 were 25% less likely to have had that conversation. And that was an organization I worked in as an age specialist. We got it down, I'm pleased to say, but people just assume, oh, well, so-and-so's 50. They're not going to want to go anywhere or do anything, but they haven't asked. Yes, I recall my local police force reporting last year on an accident with a pedestrian saying an elderly pedestrian was knocked over. And I looked at the age of the elderly pedestrian and they were 60. And I thought, well, there's, a, <laughs> there's an interesting viewpoint. They do say the police look younger every year, though, don't they? <laughs> they certainly do. So, given that age is a protected characteristic in law in many countries and ageism still prevails in recruitment, we know that. Is it the last acceptable ism? Yes, yes, I, I think you're absolutely right, but it's wrong. So you're right, but it's wrong. And it, it's interesting you ask about recruitment. You mentioned in the introduction that I worked as specialist advisor to the government's uh, select committee inquiry into ageism at work. And we called the chief executive of the Recruitment Federation to give evidence. And he sat there and on record said, ageism is rife in the recruitment industry. And I just couldn't imagine him saying it as calmly and as acceptingly if he said, gee, racism is absolutely rife. There was no, there was no sense of shock or horror in his testimony. It was just, yes, it is. And no sense of contrition. No. And then I think, so, so why is there a lack of contrition? And I, I have an analogy to feminism in the 1950s. We would say then, or you would hear then, oh, you mean, you mean a woman can do that? And now we hear, oh, you're very good for your age being able to do that. And so we have, we've really got to tackle ageism in a culturally systemic way. It manifests in recruitment but it's prevalent all the way through society. And that makes it, it really very difficult. One more thing, if I may, and I, I know I'm talking a lot. There's a myth that older workers can't adapt. And 
I look back to even when I started work, carbon copy was used, electric typewriters came in, and then there were fax machines and big photocopiers. And now we're all quite adept with our, with our smartphones and here we are on Zoom. So if you tell me that over 50s can't adapt, then actually I argue that the digital natives have had to adapt less than we have. I think I agree. It continues to strangely irritate me every time I see a poster at my local library offering digital skills training sessions for silver servers, those over 50. But then I've been heavily invested in the digital world for a long time, and I forget that others might not have been. Now, you've talked about the recruitment element and ageism within organisations. Do organisations need then to develop different skills to manage multi-generational workforces? Should they consider more flexible working patterns where possible? What other positive steps could they take? Now, this is an interesting one because it goes to the question, are older workers different to other workers? And so I, I could give two answers to this. So I'm going to say yes, no. So no, because in general, we know that what employees want is fair pay, satisfying work, and the flexibility to work to balance their work and their life as they need it. That is potentially more true for people who are older and juggling more things and who who may have demands of caring or teenage children or a an acquired disability but the actual essences of work about being paid well for a good job and being able to balance your life and your work I think are fairly universal however an employer to enable that should have flexible work from day one, should have carer's leave that is provided and is promoted from day one, and should make it clear that training are opportunities and people are welcome regardless of age. So I think if an organisation takes those principles of good employment, then it's a matter of thinking about, well, how does that apply to all different age groups? Yes, I take your point. Now, we started off talking about the demographics and the change of demographics for most Western countries and the fact that many of their population are getting older rather than younger. Do organisations therefore need to change their talent recruitment strategies to reflect these changes in demographics? And how can they be helped to do so? Yeah, and I think this is it's a really challenging situation. So, yes, they do need to change their recruitment strategy and the reason for that is that if they don't they will be fishing in an ever smaller pool because we have more old workers every year it's 30 percent now it will be 34 percent in another i'm going to say eight years but i'm pulling that stat a bit from the back of my head so if you want to fish in the biggest talent pool then you need to fish for all ages And that means you need to ensure that you are looking and recruiting appropriately with language that is appropriate, with imagery that's appropriate, with the right employment practices and policies, three things I've I've already spoken about. But the most challenging piece is addressing that ageism that is endemic. And how do you celebrate the experience? And that goes to the culture of an organization. Now I'm very lucky in Phoenix Group, Andy, my boss is 
government's business champion, and he actively promotes the benefits of an age diverse workforce and the benefits that people with skills and experience bring. You know, for example, carers. To our minds, if you are somebody who's balancing caring for somebody and working, then you're already showing brilliant balancing and skills. You're also showing you're somebody who cares. In our business, we talk to people every day who are experiencing loss of somebody who they love or making really major decisions about how they'll fund the rest of their life. And what we found is that people who have a bit more experience and who have gone through some similar things are really good to have in a team because they will help to share that experience and that thinking. So you can do things around policies and practices but you need to drive that cultural awareness. And that does come from the top. The top, by the way, is usually somebody over 50. Average age of FTSE CEO is 54, last time I checked. Yes, which is ironic given then the ageism in recruitment, isn't it? Yeah. You talked about Andy Briggs then and his connection with the British government and his fact he's a champion. What further role might governments take in pointing out the benefits of employing an older workforce? Or is it even the role of governments to do this? So I think government has two roles. One is absolutely to promote the benefits and the reasons and to promote the means for organisations to have a, a multi-generational workforce. You can just look at the money. If somebody leaves work prematurely, then the long-term consequences for the state as well as for the individual, are enormous. Because somebody who leaves work early is more likely to be in ill health earlier, is more likely to be reliant on benefits for longer. Those two things take a massive amount of resource from the state. So there is a, a real incentive to avoid that. And moreover, there is a massive incentive to enable people to work for longer, because then we earn, we spend, we save. There is a stat around the amount that older people aren't spending. And if we could unleash that by the right products and services and by removing the fear of needing to go into a care home but not knowing how much it's going to cost, we could, I think it's 6%, we could increase national GDP by. So government needs to do that, it should do that. The other thing they're responsible for is policies, and they need to reform employment policies. I talked about flex work and carers. The other thing I think they need to do is start focusing on that ageism piece and introduce a strategy for protected characteristics, all protected characteristics, and ensuring that organisations are looking and acting on their stats. Is part of the problem with older workers themselves, for example, self-disablement, not staying relevant, not investing in their own continuous development, and how can they be helped and encouraged if this is the case? Yeah, it, it's a tough one, isn't it? And I agree, I think it's a huge issue. I tend not to blame the individuals. I tend to blame society, that societal ageism, which of course is made up of groups of individuals. So to tackle that internalised piece, we need to tackle the societal piece. And I was screaming at the radio so often in the first part of, of COVID downturn when people were saying, oh, older people should make way for the younger people. And it was, it was older workers themselves saying, oh, I think I, I, think I need to give, give the young ones the opportunities. Why? 
why would you cut off cut off your financial, your health, cut off your future in that way? Why do you write yourself off? I just, I suppose I value myself a bit more than that. But I do, I do think that if you discriminate against age, you're discriminating against your future self. You're the youngest today you're ever going to be. So celebrate what you've got at every stage. We need to change the narrative. And I'm start, starting some work around what we can do to really get all of those interested parties to start talking in a more meaningful way about addressing ageism and and what role can the Equality and Human Rights Commission play in that? Because it is that last ageism. It's external. It's internal. That's got to change. And that leads me then nicely into my last question for you. What are the next things you'll be focusing on in your work? So two things, as I just highlighted, this ageism piece. So many things boil boil back down to there's ageism. So I could tinker around the edges and do all sorts of things, which I do, because I do think those other things are important. But to make that big change, we need to tackle that big issue. And I don't think any one of us has the answer. And that's why I want to get a coalition of the willing to look at what we can do. The other piece is is a bit more tinkering, but it's menopause. And obviously, 50% of the population are affected by it. There's increasing evidence that it really has a significant impact on a proportion of that 50% to the state that it becomes an acquired disability. And I think employers need to start thinking about women who are going through the menopause and is that an occupational health and safety? Is it a disability issue that needs to be looked at rather than something that needs to be shoved under the table? And what does that mean for training managers? You know, what what training does a 24-year-old lad need to have an empathetic conversation with a 54-year-old woman in his team? Because I don't know many 24-year-old lads who would feel equipped to do that. And why should they? But as employers, we need to look at that. And I'm, I'm really interested in understanding the, the impact on finances, what adaptations can be made, what, what employers should do. I'm still scoping that bit of work, but that's another focus for me. It, yeah, it's, it's personal for me. And I think just one last thing, if I may, David, we need to start believing in ourselves We've got massive talent, ambition, experience. We're the 30%. So we must not go quietly under the night. I, I want us all to rage about this. So thank you for letting me do a little bit of raging. I love that bit by Dylan Thomas. Yes, I could quote that all day long. Thank you so much for your time. There's, there's clearly far, far more than we can talk about in a 20-minute podcast, but I'm delighted that you've been able to join me and to talk about these hugely important systemic problems that we face, not just in the UK, but I know from talking to guests across the world in many, many other countries. Thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, David. It's, it's been a, a pleasure to have time to talk about my pet topic. Thank you for listening the whole way through. If you like the podcast, click on the subscribe button and listen to the advice from all my guests. I'll be back in a few weeks' time and my contact details follow next. You can make contact with me via my website, theredundancypodcast.com, which has a synopsis of this and all the podcast's main points, by emailing me at theredundancypodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter with the hashtag at redundancypcast.com.